what we do have. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. And as I shared with you, Hosea is filled with this picture of the undying love that God has for his people, his undying love that he has certainly for us. And tonight, just five verses in chapter 3, but there are powerful five verses. And as I was looking through the various translations that I have and not one of them really picked up on what I got out of it. And I don't really know why. don't know whether that makes me uh, unique in a bad way or in a really good way. But I'm going to say that it's unique in a really good way. So just, you know, just for what it's worth. But tonight a picture of God's love. And it's kind of a contrast, of course. But I think this chapter and certainly the next It gives you just a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous picture of exactly how far God goes in loving us, loving his people, loving the nation Israel. And so tonight, a picture of God's love. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for this nation. Lord, I thank you for our Congress and for our president. Lord, I especially thank you for our military scattered out all over the globe. Lord, one and a half million serving around the world, male, female, young, old. Lord, privates to five-star generals, commanders-in-chief, Lord. We're so grateful uh, for what we have here in this nation. And so, Lord, we ask that wherever they are, that you would rain down blessings from heaven upon them, that you'd keep them safe. Lord, we want to even pray for those crazy events that are unfolding tonight in Egypt as President Morsi's been deposed and Lord a military coup is underway Lord who knows what that means for the nation Israel and so God we pray for the peace of Jerusalem we ask you to have your hand upon the Middle East Lord the innocent in every land but especially your people Lord Israel would you bless them would you prosper them keep them safe Lord, tonight as we open your word, give us strength, God. Give us power. Lord, enable us to receive from your Holy Spirit. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 here in Hosea 3. And I want to read all five verses together because they're really a mini sermonette in and of themselves. And then the Lord said to me, and remember this is a picture of this relationship. We're actually going to leave this part of the story tonight. And then the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover. I want you to stop for a minute. And the obvious implications are very, very, very clear. How far does the Lord's love go? It goes far enough to love us when we're in direct, utter rebellion to his wishes and his plans. God's plan has always been and always will be to draw sinners to repentance. To bring back the lost wherever they are. To find the lost sheep, the lost coin. To bring back the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter. 
And so this beautiful picture here in Hosea's life with Gomer, who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, and notice and underline committing, in the very act. And the reason that that's important is because it ties in with the title that I've chosen for tonight. Because it's real easy, and we as human beings do very often and very frequently draw a line and we say, I'll go this far, but no further. I will love up to this point, but not an inch past. I will go five miles, but I won't go 5.276. I will allow that person to do this, but not that. And this picture is one that's already been addressed. This has been an issue in this woman's life, in Gomer's life, for seemingly her whole life. And so here Hosea is is laying it on the line with the Lord, who is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. There is the tie. How much does God love the nation Israel? Enough that even when they turn their back on him, even when they spitefully use him, even when they say we will not, even when he has blessed them, even when he has shielded them, even when he's protected them, even when he's gone after them when they were wayward, the Lord loves his people. It's a huge amount of love. Who look at other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. And so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver for one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. And so, too, I will be towards you. And so the picture here is the faithfulness that's required. Relationship with the Lord uh, demands of us faithfulness on our part because he will be faithful on his part. He always has been, always will be. And for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king or a prince, without a sacrifice, without a sacred pillar, without an ephob, without a teraphim, and afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And so this is a beautiful picture. Remember I said almost all prophecy, and it doesn't really matter where you go, what book you go to, has an immediate fulfillment. There was something that was pointed to in that day. There had a near-term fulfillment, and there is a long-term fulfillment. So generally speaking, three component parts to it. This is the real story of Hosea and his wayward wife, Gomer. It is the real story of the history of the children of Israel. And it is the real story of the future of what God will do when the nation Israel returns to the Lord. And so in all three cases, these things are true. And so whenever we find ourselves in that position of looking at the prophetic word of God, we can also draw the New Testament analogy and the parallels 
to the church, because the church is not Israel. The church is the church. We are the children of grace. We are the those who have been adopted into the family. But there are many parallels in how the Lord seeks after us. And so in the first verse here, as chapter 3 picks up the story for the final time of Hosea's personal life, this is the last of the gory details, if you will, in the, in the midst of this desolation of his heart and his home, I mean, he's already asked her to not do this. Amen? There's been a clear understanding. This is outside of the bounds of what marriage is. And so in that near term, this was Hosea and Gomer. For the children of Israel, this is, I, haven't I been good to you? And yet you still fall away from me. You follow after false gods. And in the long-term sense, even though that happens, will I not always love you and eventually draw you to myself? For us, because we're saved by grace and through faith, it's a picture of how the Lord works in our lives even when we're going the wrong way, doing the wrong thing. It seems that Gomer was now abandoning every bit of pretense. And I want you to see the the parallel that there is in the sinful life of a believer. God always makes sure that there are consequences that go with our sin. And so sometimes we think we're getting away with things. I think in this case, Gomer thought she was getting away with this. So it's like, well, what's he going to do? I mean, really, after all, you know my history. She's now gone to that place that uh, she's not even trying to fool anyone anymore. And I want to remind you that that is the last stages in someone's life before the Lord finally closes the door. That's that time in life where if you reach that place to where you abandon all pretense and you sin willingly against the Lord, you are drawing very close to that place that we don't know where the grace of God actually ends. Because it is lengthy, it is long-suffering, it is powerful, it endures an awful lot of things, but it does have its limits. And so in this case... Uh, She's left her husband, living a sinful, adulterous lifestyle, a relationship with another man. And so now Hosea, and Hosea is a picture of the Lord in this story, can no longer treat his wife like his wife. And that's what happens to us when we're in sin as believers. There's still love, and it's deep love, but it's not the same love as the obedient love. It's a very different love. It's the type of love that ultimately simply outlasts the painful things. And it can be a very, very difficult time. And so he's not going to be able to treat her like a wife. He's just going to treat her basically like a good friend. God does that to us too, doesn't he? If you've ever spent any time walking with the Lord and then walked away from the Lord... I can tell you one of the lessons that you will learn in that period of time is that though God never leaves nor forsakes, he absolutely doesn't treat you the same as he does when you're obedient. And you go through all kinds of stuff in your life that you probably don't want to go through. And he doesn't want us to go through. And so he's going to love her dearly even in the depths of sin. And what a beautiful picture of the Savior. Amen? For the Son of Man came not into this world to condemn the world, the world through sin was already condemned, but he came to save. 
He, he came while we were yet sinning, your Bible says. He says while we were going the wrong way, He came and did the right thing. And so God told this, this amazing man, He said, I want you to still love her. Act on the principle of divine love. Because only God can do this kind of stuff. I can tell you, I've seen, unfortunately, in my time in ministry, uh, I've had to witness an, a, a, an awful lot, way too many families that have broken up. And I can tell you this, 99% of the time, it wasn't anywhere near this bad. It was a whole lot less than this that caused that marriage to dissolve. And so how far does God want us to go in reconciliation? He wants us to go all the way until it's done. That's the answer to that question. He wants us to have his heart in the matter. Poor wretched gomers descended into the depths of the world's depravity. And I think before we holler too loudly, scream too loudly, point too many pointy boned fingers at this poor lady, we ask ourselves the question, how far off were you you when you met the Lord? How far away from the Lord were you when God got a hold of your heart? When he came looking for you, what were you doing at that moment that you really got it? And I I would also ask the question, how horrible must her life have been? How, How bad was it that she clung to this lifestyle? I mean, you're talking about somebody who had some severe damage in her life. Somebody who didn't really know what genuine love was. And I think there's a beautiful picture of the grace of God in this. Presumably, because that was the case then, she looks like she sold herself back into slavery to a man. Because she's going to be purchased back out of slavery, and we'll get to that in a moment. And I'm going to tell you this. It doesn't appear that the new husband the new slave owner, whatever he was, because we're not actually told, didn't really care much about her, did he? Because he was pretty willing to sell her for the price of a common slave. That's the world. And that's the picture that we find in verse 2. What a picture that is of the world's love. And so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. Verse 2 is exactly the world's picture of love. I want a bargain. I want something cheap. I want something that does what's good for me. I want, I want, I want, I want, and I don't care what it does to you. That's the world's love. That's the love that's in soap operas. That's the love that's in these stupid miniseries that are on television. That's the love that these new programs spew out by the hundreds of hours of television programming every week. That is the love that's being propagated and promulgated in our, unfortunately, on our college campuses, in our high schools, even in our junior highs. This is the type of love that the world offers. The world offers this type of love, and it basically says... I'm done with you. Take a hike. Let me see what I can get out of you. And then when I got what I want, see you. Have a nice life. That's the world's love. 
And notice the, the love of the Lord in contrast to that. That is the love the world has. You know, every once in a while, just for background information, so I keep tabs of where the world is, I'll read through the news blogs and I'll read an occasional, you know, star or starlet article and what's going on in their life. Frankly, I'm kind of hard to shock as a general rule, but I'm getting to the place where I can't believe what I'm reading. It's like, really? Is that actually what's going on in the world today? Do people find that that's somehow going to bring them happiness? You know, we're surgically altering every part of the human anatomy. We are lifting, I, I, you know, God bless Debbie and Pat Boone, okay? Pat, I like. Debbie, I'm kind of worried about her. The lifestyle lift. Like when you get to be 60, 70 years old, like anybody thinks you're actually going to look like you were 20. No, what you look like is you're 60 or 70, except you pulled all the skin to the back of your head. Why is that? Let me tell you why it is. Because most of those people are no longer married to the husband or the wife of their youth. They're still looking for what they think love is. They're on husband or wife number two or three or four or five or seven or ten. They're on relationship number 815. I read some social stats this week from the U.S. Department of Statistics. Do you know now in our nation, the average number of sexual partners for a woman is 16, and for a man it's 23? That's the average. That's the average. What are they looking for? They're looking for the world's love. They're looking for fulfillment in the moment. They're looking for exactly what Gomer did. I'm just going to do whatever I want. When she actually had real love at home. Hosea said, I actually really love you. I want you to quit doing what you're doing. But I love you. I have God's love for you. And that love transcends all those things that ultimately need to be surgically altered. Amen? It does. You grow old together. You gray gray together. You get gracefully old together. You have those same hopes and dreams and aspirations. And you go through the kids, the grandkids, the grandkids' kids, the grand dogs, the grand cats. That's God's plan. Always has been. But the world doesn't see things that way. And so as we look at spiritual warfare, begin a three-part series on Sunday. We're going to let it fly with all barrels. Because people are biting this bullet. They're going, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, yeah, I'm missing out. Maybe Gomer thought she was missing out. She was after the world's love. Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, tells us that this was exactly the price of the lowest level slave in the Jewish way of thinking. 
So if you had a very intelligent slave, maybe he was a manager or she was a manager of some part of your household. And yes, women did that at that point in time, some of them. Read Proverbs 31. They went out and bought and sold, took care of their household, did all kinds of crazy things. I know, novel idea. It's not male chauvinist, but that's what your Bible says. You, you see, what we're seeing here is the other end of the spectrum. It wasn't someone who was learned and very valuable. She had now reduced herself to the lowest rung of Jewish hierarchy in the home. This is as cheap as you could buy a human life. Having paid that price, having purchased her redemption, and that's the crazy thing. Think about it. Think of the situation for a second. Gomer, please don't go. Please stay home. Don't do this. But she goes anyway. Isn't that God's willing us? Isn't that exactly how he works in our lives? Jeff, don't do that. You don't want to go there. That's not something you want to engage in. That's not what my kids do. But you go anyway. Notice God's response. God's response is he goes after the wayward. But there's a requirement given. Notice the third verse. You shall abide with me for many days, and you shall not play the harlot. And you shall not be for another man, and so will I also be for you. God's a holy God. He's just. He has requirements. He absolutely insists that we repent. That's what he's asking. He's paid the price, taken care of her. He's going to bring her back into his home. He's going to take care of her well-being. And bluntly, she ain't worth it. She's worth the price of a common slave. The way she's lived her life and what she's done from a human perspective, this is somebody not worth having as a spouse. Amen? And if you look at it, just be rational for a moment. I'm not talking about what God's going to do, but talk about the human side of this. What would your response be? I can tell you what it is most of the time for human beings. Somebody does some leaving. Most of the time. Well, he was unfaithful. She was unfaithful. I'm done. I'm over it. I'm out of here. Aren't you glad that grace is by faith? Amen? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not any of us can boast about it. This is the grace of God in action. But I also want to remind you that real grace causes real change. And here's where a lot of people have problems. Because if you want God's love, you also have to give him your life. That's why you've heard me say often and frequently, Jesus is Savior and he is Lord. And if he's not both, you better make sure that he is Savior. Because if he's not Lord, you got some tough, tough, tough passages of Scripture to deal with. If he's not ruling and reigning, if the Holy Spirit's not in you, convicting of sin and righteousness, if your life is not marked by some change, and I'm not talking about everything all at once, but a genuine desire for the things of God, 
a keen understanding that you are no longer your own. You've been bought and paid for with a price, and that price was the sinless Lamb of God. If you can reach that place, which obviously, look at the application here, Gomer got to the place to where, I don't care. So what? That's a dangerous place to be. James chapter 2 gives us some insight. It says there in verse 18, but someone will say, I have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, the things that I do matter. They're indicators. There's actually been a real relationship and a real change in our lives. And so God does expect change in our life. And if there isn't any change, that is supposed to be the question for us in our modern day and time in the age of grace. We're supposed to go, what's not happening here? What's not working? It's supposed to remind us to get back on our knees. And bluntly, what less, think of this for a second, what less could Hosea have asked? How much less could he possibly have asked of this woman? All he says, he didn't say, well, you need to go back and make amends, and we need to go to 16 years of marriage counseling, and you know, we need to you know, have a time of separation, and you live over here in Bethlehem, and I'm going to live in Nazareth, and we'll come together once in a while. He's saying, you can come right back in my home. I have one requirement. Stop sinning. Just quit. Don't do it anymore. John 8 proves that to you. The very words that Jesus spoke to the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. He says, woman, you know, I was talking to the guys that brought you here, and somehow they all disappeared. They went somewhere. I was trying to get to their heads a little bit and figure out which one of them wanted to throw the first stone at you, but somehow they kind of all figured out that wasn't a real good idea, and there's no one here to accuse you. And by the way, I don't accuse you either. And then he said, go and sin no more. Just stop doing what you're doing. That's how deep God's love is, folks. He doesn't ask us to make everything right, because frankly, you can't. Amen? You've ever been involved in anybody's life who's been deeply embroiled in sin? All of the working in the world will not unwind all the little tentacles of everywhere that those things went. It can't be done. The critical thing is to stop doing it. Quit. Give it up. That's why when people come to me and they say, well, I don't really have a desire to stop sinning. I say, then you need to really check and see whether you're actually saved or not. Because part of what happens when you get saved is you have a conviction that those things are wrong. Maybe not all at once. Maybe you struggle for a while. But you don't struggle so hard that you don't stop. Eventually, there's got to be some stopping and some turning. There's no turning, there could be burning. It's a bad thing. Yeah. Get out my sweat towel hanging around my neck. 
So it wasn't too much to ask. And I want to share something with you. And people often ask me this question. Well, how do I stop? By sheer force of will, you can stop a lot of things. Amen? Sheer force of will, you can. The human mind's pretty capable of doing things like that. But ultimately, you reach that place to where you don't have enough sheer force of will. It's utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit is what helps you to stop. Because without the Holy Spirit alive and well in your life, all the mental gymnastics in the world is ultimately going to leave you short. You need to have a vibrant prayer life. You need to be devoted to the Word of God. You need to have the right tools, the right time, the right place, and the right power to go with them. That's how you stop. It's not by coming up with a plan. It's not by wrapping a rubber band around your wrist. It is not by an accountability partner. And I'm not against accountability partners, by the way. But I'm going to tell you something. I have yet to meet a single person who's ever defeated anything simply by having an accountability partner. Ever. Not in my entire life. Never. You know why? Because the accountability partner doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's got it in his, not in yours. Got it in hers, not in yours. And so if you aren't led by the Holy Spirit when that moment of temptation comes, if you're not empowered by the Holy Spirit when that moment of temptation comes, if you are not dead set on doing what the will of God has emboldened upon your heart, when that time comes, then you're not going to have victory. For force of will for a while, you'll probably have some success. But eventually you're going to run out of you. The arm of flesh, your Bible says, cannot sustain you. Keep you upright for a while. It's not going to keep you. This was a heart change issue. When I read this passage, I just man, I just hear the footsteps of grace in all of it. It's just like the Lord just kind of pitter-pattering in behind the scenes in this whole story. And as you think about it, you're just like, Lord, how long did you chase me down while I was going the wrong way? How long were you pursuing me and wooing? Do you see the wooing of God in this passage? God's just going, please don't. Come home. Stop. The actual story of Hosea's personal tragedy ends in these verses. You know, sometimes I wish you could kind of get the rest of the story. You ever wonder about some of these biblical characters? It's like, what happened to them? You know, did they actually do a vow renewal at some point in time? They stand underneath the hoopah again and, you know, I don't know. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't tell us what she did. Did she come home just with those tears of grace running down her cheeks, disgraced of her actions and yet repentant? We don't know. Does she finally give her heart completely unreservedly to Hosea, I don't know. Does she get along with her gossipy neighbors who now know the whole juicy story? I don't know. Did she ever get her character back? I don't know. Did they live happily ever after? I don't know. 
And I don't believe that's why this story is here. I don't think we're supposed to know. I think there's a much, much, much larger lesson here. Because the choice for Gomer was you can either live without real love or you can live with real love. That's the choice. And that's the choice every human being will have to make while they're on this earth. Do you want what God has? Or do you want what the world's going to give you? Because what the world's going to give you, as Scripture says, sin's pleasurable for a season, but the end of it's death. Satan doesn't have forked horns. He's got a really nice Armani suit. He's got some Gucci loafers, a big fat wallet, drives a real nice Beamer, has a house on the beach, his own plane, his own helicopter, and he doesn't even need hair implants. You can have what the world will offer, but it is fleeting. Only lasts for a while. And then you come face to face with exactly what happened to this poor woman. Notice verse 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king. Now we go back to the the near-term fulfillment. You see, the picture is Hosea and Gomer. The picture is even the church. The picture is absolutely Israel as it pictures grace moving forward. And it absolutely is a picture of why they still need a Savior. Amen? The Jewish people have not yet met their Messiah. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince. Those two things, those two offices were completely different. Jesus Christ is the only one who ever fulfilled all these positions, by the way. Without a sacrifice. Only one who did that for him, too. Amen? Without an image. What does your Bible say about Jesus? He is the express image of God. Read the book of Colossians. Without an ephod. Without a covering. He is our covering. He's our righteousness without a teraphim, without the representation of holiness, without that burning of the Spirit. He's the one that allows that through a relationship with him. And so this statement's been true about Israel, about Judah uh, at the time, about all of Israel, which at that time was Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, They rejected their rightful king, didn't they? I think John 19 tells you that. We have no king but Caesar. Amen? They rejected the only king that's ever come to them. So basically, Hosea was letting them know, this is where your future is going. This is what's going to happen to you. This is a picture of the Lord, his son, and you guys. And in verse 5, you see the fullness of God's love. But afterward, so ask yourself, Does sin have consequences? Oh, yeah, you better believe it does. Does your sin limit God's ability to save? The answer is no. But it can put such a damper on it that you never make it there. 
You can become so blinded by the world and its system that that grace that the Lord wants to pour out, you never find. But afterwards, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And so these five verses really kind of formulate, if you will, kind of a 1080p dramatic sermon of the history of the nation Israel, the grace that God pours out upon us as believers, and it even looks forward to those days when the Lord's going to make all these things right. The Lord has been proving his love towards us since Jesus came to this earth. Amen? Think about it for a second. Has not God been doing this to the for and towards and to and for the entire world? For God so loved the that he his that whosoever would but huh Hosea chapter 3 It's a complete picture of the plan of salvation. Just like John 3.16 is. It's the total package. I'm wooing you. I'm coming after the whole world. All I ask of you is that you believe. If you believe, you repent. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get the parallels? He's saying, here's all we got to do, folks. This is it. Israel, we're not going to make it real complicated for you because we gave you the Ten Commandments, we gave you the Levitical Law, and you guys haven't done so good at that. It hasn't worked out all that well. So we're going to reduce all the law and the commandments to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You think you guys can do that? That's God's love. If God's love was conditioned upon us doing anything, could everybody do it? The answer is no. It wouldn't matter what it is. If God's love was conditioned upon you going across the street and picking up a million dollars in a backpack, every person on earth, there's people that can't walk. There's people that can't see. There's people who wouldn't go. There's people who'd sleep in. There's people who would go, eh, it's only a million bucks. Not worth it. I got ten billion already, I don't need it. That's a million dollars. Think about it for a second. There's people on this earth that a million dollars means nothing to them. Nothing. They couldn't care less. It's not anybody here, but there are folks that that's the problem. So it wouldn't matter what you did. The works of the flesh save no one. It's only grace that can save. It's only unmerited favor. It's only the Hoseas of heaven going after the Gomers of earth. Amen? It's like, I don't really care where you've been. Just don't go there anymore. Let's work on our relationship. You come home, live with me. I promise to be faithful to you. Our God is faithful even if we are 
faithless. Amen? Now what First Timothy says? He's faithful when we're faithless. We got nothing to give. He's still faithful. First Peter chapter one verse eighteen says this knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Gomer, pretty much like you and me. Hosea, just like Jesus. Think about it for a second. Humanly, would you have bought her back? I don't care if you're a man or a woman in here. Flip the tables, switch the genders, do whatever you want, make it work in your head. Would you have purchased this person back to be your spouse? The answer is, for most of us, not on your life. Can't tell you how many spouses I've talked to. Well, I was okay until, but now I'm just done. I'm over it. I'm hanging up the towel. I'm tossing in the hat. I was okay until she did this or he did that. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that with you, with me, with us? Man. That's because we weren't redeemed with gold and silver. Amen? Because it was just about gold and silver. That put a price on your head. But none of you can come up with the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's a free gift given to all who ask. You can't buy it. It's got so much value that there isn't enough money on earth to purchase one drop of it. And so he freely gives it to everybody. That's Hosea. In this third verse here in this chapter... I want you to see kind of how it works in our lives because they were not immediately back in the same relationship they had before, even though that was broken as well. He says, I want you to just come home and stay here for a while. Let's see how this works out. Maybe you wanted to make sure she wasn't pregnant with another man's child. Maybe she, he wanted to make sure that she was going to stay. I don't know. Just like Israel today, and just like we used to be before we met Jesus, sometimes they're still messing around with other lovers. God doesn't like that. And it damages our relationship so that all we get to do is live in like we're maybe renting a room. You realize that God wants you to move in like you're the child. With all the inheritance of the child with all of the glories of God, with everything that God wants for you. He's always wanted that for everyone. He still wants it for the nation Israel. He says, but if you want to be a roommate, I'm going to let you move back in, but that's not what I want. Ultimately, he wants us to be his bride. Amen? That's what we are. We're the bride of Christ. What he's saying is, as long as you keep doing this, we will not be intimate. And the picture is very clear. You want an intimate relationship with God, 
you can't be messing around with anyone or anything. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, says the Lord. That's the picture. John 11, picking up in verse 47, kind of a picture. And then the chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered a council together and said, What shall we do for this man works many signs? If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And one of them said, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you even consider that it is expedient for us that this one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this he did not say in his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He didn't even know him, and he said, Ah, this is a bigger deal than we can take care of. This is going to take the Messiah. And not for that nation only, but also for he who had gathered together in one children of God, all who were scattered abroad. It's always only been one way and one truth and one life. Only one name under heaven whereby men may be saved. You see, the Jews were looking for something special just for them. And the chief priest knew his Bible well enough to go, Oh no, there's going to be one guy that's going to draw us all together. Everybody, Jew and Gentile. That's what we saw in the book of Ephesians. Amen? Chapter 4. How many lords are there? One. How many faiths are there? One. How many baptisms? One. How many lords over all the earth? Exactly one. That's why Isaiah 53.8 says what it says. He says he was taken from prison, from judgment. Who will declare his generation, Jesus' generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, his people, the Jews. He was stricken. So still today, Israel has not returned to the Lord. Israel has not come home. So if you leave this in the truest sense, because it says very clear, this is about my people, in the truest sense, it seems to be that if the analogy was followed all the way through, I don't think Gomer came home. I don't think she returned. You know why I think that? Because Israel hasn't returned. Israel today is without a king. They rejected the only king that they've ever had presented to them since the line of kings died out. And that was King Jesus. Amen? They said, we will not have this man rule over us. Don't want you as our king. And then they said, we have no king but Caesar. Pretty clear they rejected him as king. Israel also has no prince. That's pretty obvious. There's no king. There's no princes. So if they have not seen the one true king, they surely will not see the work that the prince does. Amen? All the records were destroyed when the Romans captured Jerusalem. A.D. 70, when General Titus Flavius Titus sacked it, done, over, finished. No one can prove what tribe they belong to. So there is no way anybody born after Jesus' time could even fulfill this. It's not possible. can't be done. So whoever the Messiah was, whoever the king was, he was born prior to A.D. 70. 
The Israelites have no sacrifice. Go today to the Temple Mount. Remember those pictures I showed you? Did you see any temple up there? Uh, two mosques. Yalaksa, Dome of the Rock. No temple. They ain't doing no sacrifice. Not happening. They don't have a pillar. That word pillar translated there is image. There is no image. In the temple they had the image of God. He dwelled between the cherubim. So when you went into the Holy of Holies, that was considered the dwelling place of God. It was there that the high priest met with God. Don't have one. They got a real cheesy replica in the Temple Mount Institute. If you look at it, it's like, wow, that's the Ark of the Covenant? Probably not. They got a golden candlestick that's wrapped with, I think, spray-painted aluminum foil. Now, they supposedly have the real one stashed somewhere, but I haven't seen it. The teraphim were actually considered to be an angelic being who was like having, having a household god. Not god as in worshiping god, but an image of like an angelic being that was actually your personal slave, if you will. They don't have a relationship with god. They got no such help. One of the things you forfeit for not having a relationship with God is you can't call on Him and expect anything from Him. Providentially, marvelously and wonderfully, God does good things to even evil people. But you don't have a relationship. You have no right to cry out and call to Him. And so there was no chance because the idolatry that was purged from their culture during the Babylonian captivity uh, there was basically no religious artifacts left. They didn't have an ephod. There was no kingly garments. There was no ephod. The high priest's ephod left during the Babylonian captivity. There isn't the real one. There's a copy. But there isn't a real one. And because there was not a real ephod, there's no one interceding for the Jewish people before the throne of grace. That's Jesus' job, by the way. Your Bible says that he dwells at the right hand of God the Father, ever interceding for us, his kids. But if you don't know him, then intercessory role, not something you can call on. The good news, Israel's not going to stay without forever. Right now they're without. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. Speaking of the very last day. And the way things are going in the Middle East, uh, we might be hearing a trumpet sound relatively soon. I don't know. Who's going to fill the void in Egypt? The Muslim Brotherhood is not real happy about what just happened to Muhammad Morsi. When you have Bashir Assad, that absolute ludic just loony dictator in Syria, is sitting there saying, wow, this is a good thing. Whenever he says something's a good thing, it can't possibly be a good thing. This is a man that's allowed the systematic destruction of 
100,000 or more of his own people, including somewhere around 90,000 children. It will be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. You know, sometimes people throw darts and rocks and stones. Well, you know, Israel is just a small country. We can do without them. Uh Uh-uh. Not me. You can hate the Jews all you want. Uh, Any nation that's that's on this earth that hates Israel also hates God. It's that simple. You don't stand for the Jewish people. You stand in direct opposition to God. That's what your Bible says. Don't take my word for it. You just saw one passion, passion passage. I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Notice the reference point in time in that day. That's the last days. The end of the age of grace. I don't want to be on that list of nations. That's why every time our Congress or our President does something dumb with regard to Israel, I fire off a little email to our beloved senators. God, deliver us from Barbara Boxer and Diane Feinstein. In Jesus' name. And I will pour out upon the house of David. Who gets poured out on at the end? The house of David. Anybody in here of the house of David? And let me give you a little clue. If you are not Jewish, you're not in that club. In other words, you're not a Hebrew. You don't have Israelite ancestry that can be traced back for several thousand years. Chances are probably not many. We do have a few, by the way. And on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, how many spirits of grace are there? Exactly one. So if you already have the spirit of grace in you because you've received the grace of God, what do you think happens in the last days to the children of Israel? They get saved. So much so that, as Paul would write in Romans chapters 10 and 11, that there ultimately will be no distinction between Jew and Gentile and that one day all Israel will be saved. But it says, on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. You can't supplicate before the throne if you don't know the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's just that simple. God hears the prayers of everyone, but he's not obligated to act on them unless you're one of his kids. So you can do all the praying in the world. That's why when people tell me they pray, usually I will ask them the following question. To whom and through whom do you pray? Because if you're just praying to the wall, uh, if you're praying to your doorknob, if you're praying to Buddha, if you're praying to Muhammad, if you're praying to an icon, if you're praying to a saint, if you're praying to anyone other than the one God through his one son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the one Holy Spirit, then you got a prayer that's not going any further than the room you're standing in. And then notice this. They will look upon me whom they pierced. The pierced one. None other than Jesus. And they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for his firstborn. You see, one day Israel's going to get it. That's what your Bible says. God's been crying out, continues to cry out. 
occurs in the latter days. Matthew chapter 19 verse 28 says this, And so Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, that's a pretty specific time, because the Son of Man hasn't sat on his throne of glory on this earth yet. You who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Where are those twelve thrones right now? Ah, they would be in heaven. But one day they're coming back to earth, along with Jesus. And so the Lord uses this message to speak to us. And he says, basically, when we get to chapter 14, O Israel, return to the Lord thy God. Right now, whether you're Jew or Gentile or Muslim or Mormon or Baptist or Baha'i faith, uh, you still get to come one at a time. But when the Lord finally pours out his spirit on this earth and the Jewish people see the one whom they have pierced and they mourn him, then your Bible says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And your Bible also says that in that time, God's going to do some pretty amazing things, and he does it to us now. And so God is gracious. No matter what name you came into the world with, Hosea's kids have a picture both ways. Their names get changed. You know, he can give us a new name. Even though we were born one way, we can end up another. Amen? It's called grace. Amen? He's gracious. In this picture, we have the valley of trouble becoming the door of hope. Isn't that crazy? Jezreel, the valley of trouble becomes the door of hope. That's nuts. The valley of Achor. We also see that God is holy. He has to deal with sin. He doesn't have any choice. God can't maintain his holiness and not deal with sin. Did you ever think about that? Sometimes people say, well, you know, I don't, I don't think God is holy like he used to be. I said, really? So you think that now he's less holy than he was. So that makes him not God. And they're like, well, I didn't really think of it that way. God can't be anything other than absolutely, perfectly just and holy. He's always been perfectly just and holy. So he has to deal with sin. So here's your two choices. By grace, through faith, you can be saved, and thereby your sin will be dealt with by the blood of Jesus. Anybody want that choice? Me. That's the one I want. I want my sin dealt with by Jesus' blood. The other way is... You can keep your sin, and you can keep waving your finger at God. You can keep punching him in the chest. You can tell him he does not exist. And then when you take your last breath, as Second Corinthians tell us, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and you are going to be judged for the things you did on this earth. And without Christ, that means you will perish eternally. So I don't know about you. I'm not so good on the judgment side. I prefer the grace side. I love grace, because if I'm not saved by grace, I'm not getting saved, period. Can't do it. I can tell you as a pastor, if it were up to me to save myself, I'm going to hell. That's simple enough for everybody. If I had to save myself, I, your pastor, am going to hell. It's going to happen. It'll just be a long string of flatlanders in front of my house this winter. And I'll, I'll think something that nobody should think. 
And I'll take my last breath right then. I will, will have been good the day before. Evil, rotten spawn of Satan in my front yard. <laughs> Something like that. And then, because my blood pressure is off the scale from the evil spawn of Satan in my front yard. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for grace. Amen. But God's holy. So he's going to stay holy. My sin's going to get dealt with by Jesus. My sin put in his account, erased. His righteousness put in my account, and I get to wear the robe of righteousness of God. That's grace. But he's still holy. To live for the world is to basically align yourself with this world. It's to break God's heart. It's to say, Lord, I don't want grace. I want to earn it myself. And frankly, if you don't see it any other way, that's just plain silly. That's not even wise. And then finally, just as 1 John chapter 4 actually says, For in this is the love of God manifest towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. That's God's love. It's exactly what Hosea did. So I don't even care where you've been. Just come home. I don't care what you did. Just come home. I don't care how many times you did it. Just come home. And don't do it anymore. That's God's love. That's God's grace. And one day, just as Isaiah 59 says, alluding to what Paul would say in Romans 11, a deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. And he will make his covenant with them. And he will take away their sins. Isn't going to happen by religion. Isn't going to happen by judgment. It's going to happen by grace. That's God's love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this amazing handful of verses that speaks to us so much about how much you love us how much you love the lost, how much you love the nation Israel, how much you cry out to us, Lord. May we never be tempted to test the boundaries of when we would walk away. Because, Lord, that's really it. You'll go the extra mile. But we may not. And so, Lord, I want to pray that you'd strengthen us, guide us, direct us, keep our hearts ever humble, Minister to our weaknesses. Use us, God, for your glory. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask these things in the blessed name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.